Part 3. Engelbert Humperdinck. She was thin, with an athletic build. Her hair was a dark brownish red that shined vibrantly in the sun. She always wore it tied back in a tight ponytail, but she would leave a long strip of bangs that framed her beautiful face. Her name was Daphne, and despite her attractiveness, I didn't attempt to flirt with her. I was still looking for a deployment opportunity overseas and wasn't looking to be in a relationship. She also seemed well out of my league. She was stern professional and obviously had her life together. By contrast, I was always goofing around and didn't even have furniture in my apartment. You can imagine my surprise when she messaged me on Facebook to go on a date. I took her to a Benihana-style restaurant and suddenly this girl that had seemed so confident at work and made the first move on me was now incredibly shy. She played with the hem of her dress throughout the entire dinner. After we ate, I invited her to my favorite bar on the other side of town. My ideal bar was one where it's large enough to get lost in a quiet corner and the overall vibe is depressing with a hint of sketchy. The creek and meadow checked every box. It was karaoke night, and we enjoyed the drunken renditions of a surprisingly expansive collection of Engelbert Humperdinck's greatest hits. I didn't kiss her that night, and I didn't kiss her on our next date either. Daphne was different, and I knew it. I was in no shape emotionally to be in a real relationship. Had I liked her less maybe she would have been a fun fling until I left for deployment, but I could tell within our first date that I would fall hopelessly in love with her. I wanted to spend more time with her, but I decided I would never kiss her. Then I wouldn't have to fall in love with her and change any of my plans. She ruined my strategy one night after eating it in and out when she asked me for a kiss, and as soon as we did, I knew my death was unquestionably on hold for a while. I thought about how I felt in Utah before leaving for basic training. Daphne was becoming what I had been longing for when I wrote, old and tired. Considering the change in heart, I decided to write a new song. You'll have to forgive me for the vocals. I already warned you about my being tone deaf. Place. 
the drive is long, but it's nice being wrong. Then just like this, you looked at me and asked for a kiss. And when I'm ready to go home, I just look into your eyes. And I'm back in the city, under all the I wanted Daphne to like the song I was writing for her, but she liked metal, and I didn't know the genre very well. My version of metal came off as more of a pop-punk than anything, but it's the thought that counts. The song starts with how I felt when I moved to California from Austin. I was living in the live music capital of the country but had now seemingly moved to the meth capital of California. I had left my things with you in Utah, and when I returned from tech school, I drove all those belongings to my new base. The drive was long and gave me time to think about everything I had accomplished. Now, at my first duty station, I regretted my choices and fell back into the old habit of drinking heavily again. Everything changed when Daphne and I started dating. My new duty station suddenly didn't seem so bad. Had I never met her, I'd still be lost without a clue of what to do with my life. The chorus is a callback to bold and tired. While I was recording, looking out at the city lights, I longed for something I couldn't put my finger on. I had assumed it was the nightlife meeting unusual people and living spontaneously. The lights represented late nights on stage with an instrument or skating street downtown when all the businesses were closed and security was gone. Hold and Tired was a song about letting that feeling go and growing up. Now, being with Daphne, I had that same feeling I got from all those neon lights. In Old and Tired, the lights fade away as the dawning of a new day brightens to me being older and exhausted from another monotonous day of work, and I've since given up my favorite things. With her I didn't need to give up anything. She was what I had been searching for my entire life, and looking into her eyes is what brightened the sky both day and night. We couldn't get enough of each other and started spending every waking moment together. I wanted to go everywhere and do anything with her, I just wanted to be at her side every second. I was terrified by how hard I was falling for her, and I didn't want to screw it up. I wasn't prepared for a serious relationship, and I knew this would likely get very serious, so I refused to kiss her for the first several dates. Then, just like that, she asked me for a kiss, and I was hers forever. We drank every time we got together, and I think she was surprised by how often I wanted to. She wasn't a drinker but did her best to keep up. If things hadn't changed, my drinking would have probably become an issue. She never once complained, and luckily my urge to drink began to die out on its own. I woke up one morning after spending the night with her, and I couldn't remember everything we did or what we talked about, and I regretted it. I wished I could remember every second of my time with her. The next time we hung out, I got drunk again, but I felt guilty about it as soon as I started to buzz. I drank some water, hoping to sober up because I could tell I was losing touch with my clear head. 
I wanted to experience my night with her in the rawest and purest form possible. This was the first time I didn't want alcohol in many years. I was so happy being around her that alcohol cheapened the moment rather than enhanced it. I had spent so many years relying on alcohol to make me more social and seem more outgoing. Daphne made me feel the same way by making me feel good about myself. She valued my uniqueness and admired my talents. Her concern was not what I had done in my past or what I'd do in the future. She was interested in who I was now. I also stopped worrying about what I had or had not accomplished as I started to feel better about myself. There was no stress about being better than I was and no shame for the mistakes I had made along the way. The things I had done in my past made me the person I am today. If that person could be loved by someone as amazing as Daphne, and I could learn to love myself too. The constant internal conflict pitting my need for creative expression against my longing for familial approval left me feeling ashamed of the things I was most proud of personally. That conflict was the trigger that would make me want to drink, and while I would still spend the next several years denying my real authentic self, Afni became the higher power that gave me the strength to resist the urge to drink when I was triggered. I had never been happier, and as I got further away from my alcohol dependence my brain felt sharper, and my depression withered. I felt like I could accomplish anything, all because of the love and support she had given me. Our first date was on February 2, 2011, and by April, I was staying at her house almost every night. I moved in a month later, and we started throwing around the idea of getting married. Things were moving too fast, but we were both so madly in love that it felt right. When I realized that November would be 11-11-11, I decided to ask her officially. Considering we had met at work, I devised a proposal that would catch her off guard at a company team meeting. I conveniently had the day off so she wasn't expecting me to be there. Our boss, Dorothy's brother Oscar, was supposed to lead a team exercise on crisis intervention and escalation. He would call on Daphne to play the role of the responding staff member. This was one part prank as I knew she hated doing things in front of a group of people, but it also served the purpose of getting her to stand center stage in front of all of our coworkers and mutual friends. Oscar picked another person from the group and had them walk outside to await their cue. They were told to re-enter the room and pretend to be having a mental health crisis to which Daphne would respond appropriately. Daphne didn't know that Oscar's decoy person was tasked with meeting me outside and holding the camera as I walked in. The look on her face was priceless when she saw me come through the doors. The plan worked so well that she was utterly stunned despite having already discussed marriage and had picked out the ring I was now holding. I could tell she was confused about why I was walking toward the front of the room and why I had such a big smile on my face. She was likely under the spell of social anxiety as she was mentally preparing to play her de-escalation role that was about to commence at any moment. I was making the whole ordeal infinitely more awkward. I had planned what I'd say to her for weeks, but my vision narrowed as I walked down the aisle toward her. Soon all I could see was her standing at the end of a long black tunnel. When I finally reached where she was standing, the words failed to escape my mouth. I fell to one knee and shoved the ring at her, hoping she'd get the idea. She said, yes, and by 11 a.m. on the 11th of November 11, I was married to my best friend after having dated for only nine months. Part 4. Sensory Deprivation Daphne's middle name is Michelle, so I wrote a song with heavy inspiration from the Beatles tune by the same name. I love the bass line in that song and copied the style and tone. I also did my best to sing backup vocals for myself, like John and George. Almost every time someone hears this song, they ask me if a woman sang the backing vocals. 
I have decided to take this as a compliment. I wrote the second song for Daphne in a folky jazz type style that I was more comfortable with, abandoning the idea of another metal attempt. The lyrics start with me remembering where I was emotionally when we first met and how I wasn't looking for a relationship. She had reached out to me and had made the first move, and I had honestly not seen it coming. There's an easter egg of a line in this verse, do you see now why I run? 
As I've said before, I rarely write lyrics first. I clear my mind and sing the first thing I think of until the song starts to come together on its own. A repeating theme in my poetry is running away from something or someone. In my song, Three Different Things, a song I wrote about my mother, there's a lot of imagery about running away from each other. This is one of many songs where I've used the words of why I run. This line is a pun and a message to myself, asking if I saw why I had been running all these years. I always thought I was running away when in reality, I was running toward Daffy. Now that we had found each other, I was no longer running away. Instead, I ran the air conditioner to make it cold enough that she'd want to cuddle. Out at base, a position opened in the medical laboratory, but it required color vision. Our unit commander was an optometrist, and he worked his magic to make my color limitations miraculously disappear from my record. It was a mysterious loophole of sorts that allowed me to cross-train into the lab. We were only married a few months, and now I would have to leave my wife for over a year while I was training. Daphne made the sacrifice to leave the job she loved, the place we met, to follow me to tech school. Her family had not taken our marriage well at first. We had rushed into things, and I think they thought I would take her away on some military deployment. Although I was only cross-training and would be back in California at the same duty station in 13 months, they felt their concerns had come to fruition, and we'd never return. The two longest and most challenging tech schools in the Air Force are Cryptic Linguistics and Medical Laboratory. The course covers microbiology, blood banking, virology, hematology, chemistry, urinalysis, and other specialty lab techniques. The tricks I picked up in music school came in handy as I was tasked with memorizing entire textbooks. I had a tall garbage bag full of note cards and fell victim to perfectionism. Having been a cross-trained airman, I was the highest ranking in a class of all trainees fresh out of basic, which meant I had to be the class leader. I took the role too seriously and shouldered the burden of ensuring everyone did as well as I did. I had my first ever anxiety attack in phase 2 of training. In the first phase, we had about 80% didactic learning with only about 20% lab work. Phase 2 of training is split at about 50%, but the lab work is now with actual patients. We'd have to report to work at 0500 and draw blood on patients throughout the hospital. I already hated phlebotomy, but waking people up so early, only to jab them in the arm, made it so much worse. These people were also sick, so finding the vein in each patient was extraordinarily difficult. The stress of the ordeal amplifies when you miss the vein and have to try again. Now, the patient is pissed off, and you're running behind on collections. As the class leader, I was the liaison between the students and the instructors. I struggled to maintain my grades and care for my patients, but I also had to put out little fires across the delicate landscape of near-teenage trainee emotions. I finally cracked one night after work when I couldn't focus anymore and could hear hundreds of voices in my head. So many people were talking that I couldn't make out what anyone was saying, but it wasn't like standing in a crowded place. All the voices were talking to me directly, expecting a response. Daphne had been making use of her time volunteering on base and around town, so I had the house to myself. I tried to sleep it off, but the voices kept getting louder and more demanding. I would have drowned them out with alcohol in the past, but I was learning to cope in different ways. I was so overstimulated by the noise in my head that I decided to try sensory deprivation. I crawled into bed and then put on noise-canceling headphones and a blindfold. 
The voices became louder, and at first, it was almost too much to handle. I tried to clear my mind and meditate, but they became more intrusive. After a few minutes of relaxing, I started to recognize one of the voices in the group. It was Herman Martinez, one of the trainees that had been in my phase one class. Once I picked it out as him, I could pretend he was in the room with me. Now I could focus on what he was saying. His roommate would cut his toenails in one corner of the dorm and then leave the pile of discarded nails there. Martinez refused to clean it for him, so now the pile had turned into a mound. His roommate didn't shower, never brushed his teeth, wore a wrinkled uniform, and would surely get them both in trouble at the next dorm inspection. I listened to everything he had to say and gave him some advice. I eventually promised I'd let the dorm manager know and see if I could get him transferred to a different room. Martinez was satisfied and went away. I immediately started trying to single out another voice. One by one, I identified each voice and listened to their concerns. Some wanted advice, and others just wanted to vent before fading away. An hour passed, and I was sitting in bed in pure silence. I had successfully coped with stress without needing to drink. I now had another tool in my belt for dealing with anxiety, and I crushed the rest of my time in tech school. I loved my new job so much that I decided to take the necessary steps toward making it a civilian career after graduation. To be a scientist in California, I needed a bachelor's degree and had to pass a licensing exam. Armed with renewed confidence and additional coping skills, I enrolled at the University of California. The classes were more demanding than anything I'd ever attempted before, and I was stressing myself out trying to maintain a 4.0 GPA that, to this day, has meant nothing to my career. Because I had taken so many classes outside of the biology degree, I had zero electives to pad my schedule. I had to take all upper division math and science classes. Each semester, I spent more and more time in the study halls. I was taking a genetics class when Daphne and I decided to start trying to have a baby. It was enlightening to put my homework to use and rather exhilarating to see my school project turn into an actual child. I had researched a few things that were supposed to improve your odds of having a boy, and I employed them all. I also cut out processed sugars and caffeine, two things that I read could damage your sperm or negatively impact cell division. When Daphne became pregnant, I knew in my gut that we were having a boy. There wasn't an ounce of doubt in my mind, and I focused on thinking of only boy names. I'd refer to Daphne's belly as son, and I'd talk to the little slugger through her stomach. This is why my dream surprised me a few weeks before the gender-revealing ultrasound. 